In her extraordinary new novel, The Unfolding, A.M. Holmes invites readers into the lives of a wealthy, John McCain-supporting Republican family on the day of Barack Obama's election in 2008. In doing so, she confronts us with the flip side of a realisation that many would have had precisely eight years later, that in our divisive political times, one person's American dream is another person's American nightmare, or perhaps better, American carnage. Indeed, for many, reading The Unfolding will likely be a through-the-looking-glass experience, during which, despite finding the characters' political views and positions objectionable, despite rooting for their shenanigans to fail, and despite every fibre of their being resisting it, they'll find themselves understanding and empathising with the so-called big guy and his family as complex, damaged, disappointed human beings. For as well as being a kind of satirical origin story for the MAGA movement, The Unfolding is also, crucially, a book about families, the frustrations they fester and the lies and compromises that sustain them. Not to mention a moving examination of what happens when the scaffold that supports one's vision of the world and oneself suddenly and irretrievably collapses. A.M. Holmes, thank you so much for joining us on the Shakespeare and Company podcast today. Adam, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to uh, to speak to you again. It's been a it's been a few years since we um we we had the joy of uh, hosting an event with you at the uh, at the bookstore. Um, so I think what I'd like to begin is with the feeling I had in the opening chapters of the book, which I kind of alluded to in the introduction, which was when we're with this Republican John McCain supporting family as they're watching the votes come in and as they're realizing that Barack Obama has been elected. Everything they are feeling, their despair, their fear, their sense of the world collapsing around them, was everything that I, even as a non-American, felt in 2016 when uh, when Donald Trump was elected. And that was quite a discombobulating feeling to have that sort of profound sense of disturbance displaced to a moment that I experienced with with a certain joy. And I'm just curious to know, was that feeling of Trump coming in in some way, the the seed of the of the book. Well, the strange thing is that I started writing the unfolding well before Trump was even on the on the scene as a candidate. Um, I felt quite a long time ago that there was something happening, sort of in the evolution of American political culture, mm-hmm. where I felt that politicians had really lost touch with the average American voter. And then at the same time, there was also the rise of two things. One was the rise of what we now call dark money, but sort of Mm -hmm. outside money and money from sources that are not accounted for coming into the political process, which now is almost running like an open tap. Um, Mm. And then also uh, Barack Obama was one of the first candidates to use social media. And that at the time we applauded him for his clever use of social media. And obviously now it's become a very complicated um, thing where people are using it for all kinds of almost disinformation or propaganda. Mm-hmm. So I, I love the way that you characterize that discomfort that one felt when Trump mm-hmm. won uh, as the opposite of how we felt when Obama won. Because when Obama won in 2008, you know, I bought a new TV for the election night. I thought, mm-hmm. I'm going to upscale from my college TV. I'm going to get at least bigger than 13 inches. Um, and people poured into the street, streets of New York and all over the country, you know, filled with joy and optimism and a sense that something big had changed. Mm-hmm. And yet, as a fiction writer, I'm always curious about what others think and the other side yes. of things. And I always have this habit of using what I call the least likely characters to explore mm-hmm. that. So for me, the way to explore what I felt was happening as this sort of shift in American political culture was by looking at men like the big guy and his cohort, and also looking at young people voting for the first time that mm-hmm. year and their evolution. So I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I want, really want to pick up on this fact of this sort of it being essentially a sort of a pre-Trump novel, because I, I think I suppose because it's coming out in in, in sort of a, well, hope what we would <laughs> like to think is a post-Trump world. Let's uh, let's put a pin in that thought. Um, it's sort of there's it's almost impossible to read it as anything, as I said, other than a kind of an origin story with kind of Trump in mind. Assuming you were sort of writing it throughout Trump's presidency then, I, did the the real life developments and the reality of, of Trump have a profound effect on the direction that it took? 
you know, I think that your characterization of it as a um, an origin story for the MAGA movement is actually spot on, is really in, in many ways accurate, because I think a lot of people sort of looked at the evolution and even the fact that Trump became president with a kind of shock as though, and even Trump, sort of like, that's mm-hmm. just not possible. And I think for the, the guys, the forever men in my book, the idea that we would evolve to that point was in some ways the idea too that their program was working and their scheme mm. to disturb and disrupt and they would hope to reclaim their vision of the American Republican Party. And I think what we saw with Trump was was really the the bloom of a whole other kind of Republican and also um, disruptor that I don't think we'd planned for. So Mm-hmm. To answer your question about was I writing as Trump was, you know, evolving as a candidate and then as president, the answer is yes. But I also became sort of worried. I thought, oh, no, this is actually happening. And mm-hmm. how do I write not in reaction to it? Because I thought that mm. would take me off course. But I did feel I had to then push the forever men into almost a more surrealistic, absurdist, mm. Dr. Strange lovey sort of place um, and even then, I couldn't quite sometimes get far enough from what turned out to be real. So it was terrifying, honestly. Wednesday, November 5th, 2008. The Biltmore Hotel, second floor bar, Phoenix, Arizona. 1 a.m. This can't happen here. He's been at the bar for 90 minutes. A dozen men have come and gone, having drowned their sorrows, done a little business, and put the whole thing to bed. There are four whiskey glasses in front of him, each one different, none of them empty. In one corner, the television is on, volume down. The talking head post-mortem will go all night. In the other corner, by the window, there's a couple canoodling like there's no tomorrow. And in the middle of the bar, a screwball with a Zippo lighter runs his thumb over the wheel again and again, scratching the flint to spark. Windproof, he says each time the fuel ignites. Windproof. It's on me as much as anyone, the big guy says to the bartender. Humility, if nothing else, requires that a man take responsibility for his failures. You sound like a man pleading guilty, the bartender says. I am guilty. No prophet is accepted in his own country. No doctor heals in his own home, the bartender says. You're seriously playing that card here? Well, on Saturday nights, I work at the casinos, Desert Diamond, Talking Stick. I've seen men give up the ghost right in front of me. And even on their way out, they're still feeling the high. Hit me. Hit me again, the bartender says. The big guy shakes his head. All men make mistakes, but making the same mistake twice isn't a mistake. It's a pattern. Tonight, it was like Fat Man and Little Boy got together and planted a mushroom garden right here in Phoenix. And yet, somehow, we're surrounded by folks who have no idea what they brought upon themselves. No idea. A man slides into the seat next to the big guy, glances at the four glasses of whiskey, and signals the bartender. Pour me one of those, he says. Which one? The one in the middle. There is no middle, the bartender says. The Highland Park. The big guy looks up. You can call it in the dark. Slancha, the man says, knocking back the drink. You're not one of them, are you? The big guy asks. One of what? Your hair is wet, so I'm thinking you're one of the assholes who got sprayed with champagne and did a little victory dance a couple of hours ago. I don't think so, the man says. I'm more like a fella who came downstairs and took a dip in the pool in order to clear my head. Explains the smell, the big guy says. Chlorine. The man taps his glass with the bartender. Again. Were you in the room upstairs, the big guy asks. I was. And what did you see, the big guy asks. A generational earthquake, the man says, that split the terra firma. The big guy snorts. I would characterize it as a heavy metal Led Zeppelin, a grim shaking of the head, the palsied, all-too-knowing dip of disappointment, keening women knowing they'll have crushed male egos to deal with for breakfast, the damp, dull face of defeat who banked on the wrong horse in the absence of a better horse, while full well knowing it wasn't even a horse race, but really a rat race. Please tell me you're not a reporter, the big guy says. Historian, sometimes professor, occasional author, but not on the clock tonight, the man says. Well, if you're not on the clock, then why are you here? Bearing witness, the man suggests. Fellow traveler, 
The big guy flags the bartender. Give him the Aardberg. It's one of my favorites. I call it Santa's Paws. It tastes like it crawled out of the fireplace. Smoky. They should just burn it down, the screwball with a zippo says, flipping his lighter into the gun position and letting the flame go high, then slapping the lighter closed. The bartender goes over and asks the screwball to settle his tab. It's been a long night for everyone, he says. Time to go home. There's no place like home, Zippo says, standing up. Every dog is a lion in his own home. He peels 20s off a thick wad of cash, knocks back the rest of his drink, and leaves the money under an empty glass. That that idea of when you said, you know, uh, this is happening, um, it brings me on to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, so the, the very first line of the book, uh, once we get past the the sort of the date of uh, you know, yeah. 5th of November 2008, yeah. is this can't happen here. Now, obviously, uh, that will, to a lot of listeners, evoke the the, t- the title of the Sinclair Lewis book, which became very popular or for a second time after Trump was um, elected. It can't happen here. And this is sort of, uh, again, I think a, a, a sensation a lot of people had at the moment of at the moment of Trump's election. And on reading the unfolding, uh, sort of a realization, I, yeah, actually, probably a lot of people had on the the election of Barack Obama. But I'm just curious about that feeling, um, which is living in sort of continental Europe, that doesn't seem to be a sort of a political reaction native to to Europe. And I wonder if that's because maybe it has happened here in relatively recent history. Do you think there's something about the sort of relative isolation of America and the relative sort of political stability, in a sense, since the um, since the the you know the, the the founding of the republic, that has made this a particularly sort of profound sensation in or profound reaction in uh, in the American populace. Very good question. I mean, I would say, I think that America, although it's suddenly aging rapidly, is still a young country, mm. and its relationship even to its own history, to me is, I would say, almost delusional at times. Mm-hmm. And I think in part that is, if you look at Donald Trump, Donald Trump had not only no relationship to history, no understanding of history, no mm-hmm. understanding of what the rules of being president are, uh, no interest in them and no interest mm-hmm. in what had come before. I think that that kind of relationship to identity in some ways, mm-hmm. and, and national and political identity is complicated and dangerous. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, in the unfolding, they talk a little bit about how when um, Al Gore and, and Bush were running. So I went to bed that night thinking Al mm-hmm. Gore had won the election. And I woke up in the morning and George Bush was president. And there was somebody, it's not a person, it's, this is a joke, but, you know, hanging Chad, there was this notion mm-hmm. of this hanging Chad in Florida. And the way that 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 election was essentially decided that George Bush would be the president, even though I guess technically he really hadn't won. And so Mm -hmm. that to me is fascinating. And then that takes us up through, you know, Barack Obama and all of a sudden the Republicans and they say this in the book, they can't do that trick again. And so that's Mm -hmm. part of their losing of power. And now what we're seeing with certainly the Supreme Court and all that stuff is that the Republicans are once again consolidating power and actually mm-hmm. using it in very, I would say, dangerous and destructive and, and ways that roll us back. So part of, I think, the complexity of the American political situation is both its youth and in a weird way, its naivete mm-hmm. and not even recognizing how fragile, I mean, it seems stable and we thought it was stable, but then I think on January 6th, we saw, wow, this whole thing is thoroughly fragile because in order for it to be sustained, you actually have to subscribe to the idea and agree upon what is democracy. And suddenly that word is up for grabs. Absolutely. And I think actually it's, I think in a sense, Britain is living through a sort of uh, the United Kingdom, I should say, a sort of a parallel thing because, um, you know, this is sort of a, a country which was sustained on almost kind of a, a succession of gentlemen's agreements. Uh, but then if suddenly the people in charge are no longer gentlemen, are no longer ascribing to the gentleman agreements, suddenly all bets are off. That's exactly what we are. Yes. And that's exactly what we have with Donald Trump mm. is that so many things were not legislated because they were never called into question and nobody thought to disagree with them. Um, mm-hmm. And suddenly there are no longer gentlemen and there are no longer facts. I mean, I think when Kellyanne Conway 
said, well, there are alternative facts. And all of a sudden, we have this spinning of all kinds of stories, whether it's about vaccinations or who won an election. If you can't agree that something is true or not true, I don't know how you can maintain any kind of stability. I mean, that is the very kind of chaos that actually, you know, we have CIA manuals that were written in the 60s about how do you create that kind of chaos, which then makes fractures in the social political environment that allow for, of course, the overthrow of a government. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's it's so funny, not funny to look at that and think that could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You used the word um, naivety earlier to talk about the um, the sort of the, the, the American approach or the American mindset. And I guess that makes me think a little bit of that concept of um, the American dream, which is uh, an incredibly flexible and kind of usefully fluid concept. In the past, it seemed almost for sort of uniting a country. And I remember I did an interview with a few years ago with um, Professor Sarah Churchwell, whose uh, book Behold America is a sort of an, an investigation of this concept of the American dream. And was completely fascinated to see that it is it is something which has transformed uh, immensely over the years and essentially has become a sort of has always been a political tool for whichever um, whichever uh, party is in power. But one thing that seems to have happened recently and which becomes very clear while reading the unfolding is that sort of the sense of it has almost split into two. And instead of having this kind of useful fluidity, you've got these two opposing irreconcilable versions of this dream. Yeah, that's a a very good observation of it. I mean, I would say two things. One is we often forget that the American dream is a dream or a fantasy. And it was an Mm -hmm. idea, you know, post-World War II idea of who we might become. And then it became a kind of entitlement. And once people Mm -hmm. sort of hung on to it as an entitlement, like you will have a house, a car, you know, a job, two children, all of these accoutrements and bells and whistles then it became also much more fractured because some people were like, hey, I didn't get a house. I didn't get a bigger house. I didn't get a second house. Um, and I think it's really complicated because I think the big guy and his cohort are hanging on to a sort of a 1950s fantasy, right, mm-hmm. of the American dream. And other people are interested in a very different kind of American future, one that is more diverse, more inclusive, has more range and flexibility, as you would describe it. And I would say now, there is this incredible divide in this country. And it's not mm-hmm. even one divide. It's it's multiple because there's the divide of an immigrant population and also people who want to come to this country, who want the opportunity and the fantasy of that dream. And they're being sort of held off and held at bay. Mm. And then there are people who believe that they invested in the American dream, working class people who no longer have the job they thought they would have, who don't have the kind of education for their children they thought they would have. And then there's the 1% who are like, hey, it's working out great. I got to be sure that I can keep everything in place because I still want like just to keep adding zeros to my bank account. Mm. So I think that's an interesting thing. And I remember one of my editors in England called me and said, you know, the big guy and his friends are talking a lot about um, preserving and protecting democracy. Mm. She goes, but it sounds like they're doing something exactly the opposite of that. They're trying to sort of take over. And I said, well, that's really interesting because suddenly ideas of what is a democracy are very different. And so there is a democracy that absolutely is run by older white men that they want to protect and preserve it. And then there's a very different democracy that is democratic and where people can rise or fall based on skills, talents, you know, whatever that is. But yeah. Mm. That puts me in mind of something which um, I was going to bring up later, but it seems like a good moment to talk about it, which uh, one thing I think the the book does so well in sort of discombobulating the reader in a way is there are certain things that you read. And if you would just take the words out of context and you don't know who's saying them and you don't know why they're saying them, you might find yourself supporting them or not supporting them. So um, the one that I, I particularly noted down, so uh, the, uh, the character referred to as Baldy here says, we are prepared like an alien life form. We walk among you. 
There are those who say the system of checks and balances have been gravely injured, but they need to know that the backbone of America is protected. Continuity of government goes beyond the Constitution because in the event of a, the kind of emergency you anticipate in the 21st century, the provisions of the Constitution take too much for granted, including the idea that there are survivors and a government to succeed the one that's currently in place. Now, so this is essentially sort of an embodiment of this idea of the, the so-called deep state. And when you hear that sort of somebody saying that in relation to the election of Barack Obama, it feels incredibly sinister. Put the exact words into somebody talking, at least to me, somebody talking about the election of Donald Trump, and I would find it oddly reassuring. And that probably should make me ask some pretty serious questions to myself as well. Right. And and the fact that, I mean, that is that is exactly the whole point of it, is depending on who's saying it and how you feel about their point of view, it feels both protective or really menacing. Um, it also really is true uh, in that very literal sense. I wouldn't necessarily identify it as a deep state, but you know, Eisenhower really did develop these plans for continuity of government in case of nuclear attack. Mm -hmm. um, and those plans remain in place. They remain not particularly articulated. Uh, Eisenhower tapped 10 men and gave them each the power to sort of run banking, run agriculture. Um, and so that was the idea for where these forever men came from. He wrote letters to them saying, you have the authority in case of national disaster to just show this letter and you will be allowed to run all of the agriculture in this country, which also, I mean, it's, it's talk about naive, right? Yeah. Mm. I have a letter here that just says I'm in charge <laughs> now. Um, I don't know who to show it to because I don't know who's left, but you know, and they built all kinds of, um, bomb shelters. There's, there's a place in Virginia called Mount Weather. This is all, mm -hmm. the book is, is rife with facts. Anything you think uh -huh. is thoroughly weird is likely true. Um, mm -hmm. They have copies of every phone book, every social security record. They have all these crazy things, you know, buried underground all over the country. So that's all real. Um, and it is both scary and it's supposed to be a system of checks and balances. And all mm -hmm. of our you know, our, our executive, judicial, and, and uh, Congress are supposed to be, you know, these guardrails. But we've seen, obviously, how that can run wild. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it, that, I mean, not, I'm laughing, which is, it's, it's so not funny, but it is so deeply disturbing. And I guess the idea for me is also, I hear some of the things that people say, and I just think, how can you say that? How can you speak in that way that tells people you should come to Washington on January 6th? You should march yourself right into the Capitol. That's your Capitol. And you should take over because the people who are in charge don't know what they're doing. And I think mm -hmm. they actually showed up to do that. Um, that is wild and crazy. And it, for me, as a fiction writer who has spent years pushing at the boundaries of where we can go morally, sociologically, politically, mm -hmm. I'm left a little bit like, uh-oh, you know, where is it going to go now? Because um, yeah. I'm yeah, scared. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk um, a little bit more about the the big guy himself and his family before we get we get onto his schemes. Now, it's yeah. interesting because um, I read, um, I was reading the book last week uh, for the podcast today, and next week I'll be speaking to Ian McEwan about his new uh, his new novel. And these are two vastly different books, except both have protagonists who are essentially born at the end of World War Two, mm -hmm. And this strikes me as a very, very interesting generation. So you, you said, so for example, that his idea of the American dream was based on the, the sort of 1950s vision. And of course, that would have been uh, the moment when he was a little boy and he was growing up and he was growing up in this world which was get grow seemingly increasingly safe in many ways mm -hmm. increasingly prosperous and in which and i think crucially his generation were never called upon to prove themselves as men in the way that his father's generation and grandfather's generation and probably you know generations back had been and it sort of continued to embody um, embody throughout their childhood. And that seems to me something, when we look at how our world has evolved over the last sort of 60, 70 years, that seems mm -hmm. to be a sort of a crucially and often sort of un under-talked about thing. I think that's really interesting because I think certainly in America, you know, one of the, the ways in which men were called upon to prove themselves was through military service. Mm -hmm. And we often had... Um, you know, when someone was running for president, they would talk about where they had served. George Bush mm -hmm. 
you know, was in a plane that was shot down. John Kennedy was in a, you know, I think another plane that was shot down. Um, Donald Trump was not in anything. He had, you know, problems with his feet. Mm-hmm. Um, even John McCain, I mean, John McCain also, you know, was a, a, a obviously he was, he was a, a prisoner of war. Um, what is interesting is that the men who, were, as you said, were growing up in the 50s would have been both eligible and part of the draft that went to Vietnam. And yet upper class men and people in college and so on managed to often avoid that. And that mm-hmm. was a big thing. So I think that one of those questions is very valid of, of sort of how does one prove oneself? And also many of the men in this book um, sort of succeeded on their father's coattails. So their fathers mm-hmm. had been men of distinction and hard work and sort of defined themselves and built their own worlds. And yet their sons entered those worlds and kind of took them on without having done the sort of the, the true labor. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess it's also one of those uh, sort of odd things that like uh, the generation of these, I, I suppose, you know, broadly speaking, baby boomers, yeah. um, particularly, I guess, the middle classes would have had their children maybe slightly later. And so uh, the big guy's daughter, Megan, is... Uh, in her sort of late teens in in 2008. And I was thinking that I can't think of two generations historically who socially, culturally, technologically would have had such different uh, experiences growing up and growing into the world. Exactly. I mean, I think that that's also something, even though this book takes place in 2008, I think that's all the more amplified right now where suddenly... Mm you know, there is an incredible generational split, both in terms of politics, looking at climate change, looking at the the expectations and the disappointment youth has in their parents and, and, and all that happens. So I think that's a very, very real thing and probably the largest sort of generational gap since World War II um, mm-hmm. and since the sort of the end of the depression and all that kind of thing. Um, and I find that fascinating that in many ways, the big guy also... He thinks he's having his own sort of wake up call to realize that, okay, maybe he's kind of a jerk. Maybe his wife and child have sort of suffered, even though he tried to take care of them, that his caretaking was really more paralyzing than caretaking. Mm -hmm. Um, But he still doesn't see the ways in which they want to move forward in the world independent Mm -hmm. of, for lack of a better word, the patriarchy. I mean, so much of this book of what's not overtly said is really about racism and sexism Mm -hmm. and the way that that older generation still doesn't even see that um yeah 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 yeah. and and his his wife um charlotte is a a sort of a fascinating character as well i mean of course the big guy isn't um a a politician uh and yet i mean there's a moment where you say that um i think megan is reflecting megan the daughter is reflecting that from the back her mother looks like nancy reagan and there is this kind of, I mean, may, I don't know if it's strange to Americans or just to, to foreigners, but this kind of phenomenon of Republican wives is fascinating. It's sort of like almost kind of, I they seem almost kind of identical, blonde, sort of almost Stepford wife, very sort of uh, sculpted, very sort of dry, very quite often quite cold. Yeah. And yet... Of course, you know these are these are rich, complex uh, human beings uh, underneath that. Absolutely, and and I've also always been fascinated by watching political wives. I mean, I think if you look at Nancy Reagan, if you look at Mark Margaret Mitchell, Martha Mitchell, sorry, John Mitchell's uh, wife, mm. who they now just did you know a new TV show where Julia Roberts plays her. Um, but even Betty Ford, who obviously had a, an alcohol problem, I think the expectation of these women was that they would support their husbands at all cost mm-hmm. uh, and they would keep everything buttoned up. And so, you know, it's, it's not surprising that many of them turned to alcohol and so on. It's also interesting that Nancy Reagan, you know, her big thing was just say no, which was mm-hmm. to drugs. Whereas, you know, Rosalind Carter was like all about mental health. Um, and, and so there is that divide, I think, in terms of even, how one is expected to comport themselves. These these mm-hmm. women were absolutely supposed to keep it all in. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And we're not, um, I, I don't want to go into too many details about sort of Charlotte's uh, journey, let's say, in, <laughs> in the unfolding, because I don't want to, to spoil it for our listeners. Um, but there's, a, there's, there's certainly a, sort of a breakdown um, at a mm-hmm. moment. And um, the one way that the, the big guy kind of Ted tries to think about it is that um, he says Charlotte cracked due to increased hydrostatic pressure. And hydrostatic pressure, as you made clear to us, is the kind of this downward form of gravity uh, from above. And that just seemed such a sort of uh, evocative description of how it must feel to be in this kind of buttoned up, restrained uh, position that so many of these political wives who you make clear at another moment you know it's didn't really have choices a lot in that generation it wasn't I think you say at a moment they weren't asked what they wanted to be they were asked what kind of man they wanted to marry exactly yeah I mean part of it for me too was so much about looking at you know in the ways that we were just talking a minute ago about the generational divide was also looking at Charlotte and her daughter Megan as Mm -hmm. two different generations of women who in some ways are still facing the same struggle which is for autonomy for, for one's ability to sort of discover and embrace one's own identity and, and sort of free thought. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought that was very interesting to me to, to look at women of two very different age groups, two very different in some ways experiences who obviously live together and coexist, but, you know, and, and even Megan's awakening to the fact that Charlotte is quite cold and somehow she's like, that's okay, but it, it's not mm-hmm. really okay. And then Charlotte also is not so okay with it. So I, it's interesting because I so love all of these characters and I'm very mm. interested in the braid of the big guy and his cohort and their sort of private life and, and the world of men alone together and what mm. they do in the games they play. And then also of women still struggling to kind of crack out of that shell of, of expectation and in a way repression. Um, and even there's a moment where Megan is taking this course in women's history which for me also was very interesting because still when history is taught in this country, it's not inclusive. It is not mm-hmm. histories. It is the history of men in this country. Yes. Um, and if you want to study women's history, it's a separate course and it's usually only taken by women. And if you want to study African-American history, it's a separate course and usually only taken by you know people of color. So mm-hmm. that's all to me a huge problem. And I think that's also part of what Megan is waking up to, to realizing there's way more to the story than otherwise we've been told. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's, that sort of question of identity is is central in a way to, to, to the book. I mean, uh, definitely to the family at the heart of it. So I think for, 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 for Megan and for Charlotte, I guess it's kind of it, having sort of their personalities be shaped and developed within the patriarchy. Uh, they sort of, you know, they, they probably have a clearer sense of, struggling to to figure out who they are uh than than the big guy but but in a, in a sense the big guy is having that too like he sort of he seems to have reached a sort of a point in his life and this is what brings him onto this this cohort and this scheme which we'll come on to talk about is like he he seems to have you know in this kind of collapse of his political dream he seems to have lost also a sense of 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 who he is and in, in a way, perhaps because he doesn't have the patriarchy to push against in the same way as Charlotte and Meghan, it's almost going to be harder for him to answer that question about who he is. I think that's that's all so, so interesting. And I, I when I look at the big guy, I think about how there really does seem to be a very profound fear among mm. white men, and especially older white men, that they are being displaced or replaced uh, at that they are losing something that they always assumed they would have, which is a mm-hmm. kind of privilege and a kind of entree. And the idea that they don't have to explain themselves, they can just enter any room. Mm-hmm. And as some people say, bless their hearts, because I, I think they don't even realize that other people don't have that. I mean, that's the thing is the big guy is not thinking he's not a good person. He thinks he's a great person. And then all of a sudden he begins to realize, maybe I'm a jerk. Maybe there's a lot that I haven't tuned into. Maybe I didn't realize even my effect on the people around me, which is a kind of white male obliviousness, um, Mm -hmm. which I'm laughing because again, I'm always 
sort of in awe of it, slightly horrified by it. <laughs> um, but it mesmerizes me when I see it, yeah. you know? Um, and I do, I'm, I'm funny, you know, I am a funny person by nature. So even now, if some older white guy sort of pushes past me, I, I literally will say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I was that invisible. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, my special powers are really working today. So yeah. <laughs> it does interest me, all of that. And I think, I think that he is having his own struggle of who he mm -hmm. is, who he wants to become, the mark he wants to leave is mm -hmm. very important to him, which means he wants to maintain that power for as long as possible. Um, at the same time, I think he realizes that he needs to evolve in some ways, especially mm -hmm. with regard to his family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You put me in mind of um, there's a British comedy sketch by these two comedians called Mitchell and Webb, where they're they're two Nazi officers at a moment during the war, and they suddenly have this realization, like, oh, hang on, maybe we're the bad guys. Right, right. But that's so <laughs> um, you know exactly. It's like when you again, depending on who says something, it sounds okay or it doesn't sound okay. Yeah, um, and I think yeah, yeah. it's really part of the bigger debate, right? Like, who are we and where are we going and who are we mm. following? Yeah. And I, I hesitate to kind of do a sort of a sort of pop psychoanalysis on uh, on, on the big guy. But one thing I had when so he he um, he he starts essentially gathering this group around him who become known as uh, as the forever men. And, and they start sort of essentially coming up with a plan as they see it to 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 preserve democracy. And it's first of all, it's all guys, obviously. And. The first thing that sort of struck me was, um, and then maybe it's because I've been thinking about this in connection to other things and connected to the sort of, I guess, my pa my parents, my father's generation and the sort of the fathers of, friend, of, 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 of friends and, and family and like realizing actually men of that generation don't really have friends. Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly there's a sense of sort of like a lot of the big guy schemes alongside, you know, his political beliefs, his fear and stuff seems to be wanting to surround himself with some other guys who could be like his buddies. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's also fascinating, isn't it? Like my dad, who, you know, died a few years ago at 94, I would say mm -hmm. only started to have friends like in his 80s. Um, and they would right. be people he met, you know, taking some class. But I think men of a certain generation have work and they mm -hmm. make their lives around work and then they rely upon their families and their wives to take care of the rest and sort of figure out their social you know situation and in this case the big guy i think there's there's things in it that to me are hysterically funny you know he mm -hmm. he plays war at home you know and yes. builds scenes on ping pong tables and pool tables and uses <laughs> you know orange jello as agent orange when he's reenacting vietnam and then when he's with his guy friends he has a whole hunting weekend and there are these things, guys go and do activities together. They go and play pool, they hunt, mm. they, you know, whatever. I, you know, women, I guess, I don't know, Have we, we, we meet for coffee between carpools or picking kids up from places. But guys go on sort of these adventure things. And in this case, they go off and really play war in the woods of Wyoming. Um, and to him, it's like the best thing ever. It's like his, his ping pong table and his, you know, battlefield brought to life. Um, and so I do think he is... He is truly rolling in the pleasure of male company, as are the others. And they're all sort of pontificating and speaking in platitudes and sort of, you know, saying things that in some ways make absolutely no sense. But they mm. love the sound of their own voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, we're not going to have time, obviously, to talk about each of the... Um, the different kind of cohort together, yeah. um, but but talking about like the, the the plan that they they start concocting. Now, I mean, this yeah. isn't something you necessarily go into sort of great detail about, and this is very much in the early stages. Sort of, you know, they I guess kind of it's in the sort of the founding of their group and sort of laying the groundwork and trying to decide what they uh, what they stand for and how they want to preserve democracy. Uh, but one thing that becomes clear even without those details is that there are going to be some unintended consequences of this. Like, this, they are, uh, for want of a better metaphor, opening a kind of Pandora's box um, and, I guess, living again in a sort of a post-Trump world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's difficult not to, uh, not to read, you know, some of the things they're saying and just think that they're sort of be almost desperate at their, at their naivety of thinking that once they sort of unleash these... Uh, various forces which they've identified that they'll then be able to to control them 
Yeah, I think that, I mean, the idea that they can control them is totally naive. I think what's what's super scary is it all happened. Um, mm-hmm. That those those plans, whether made by a group of men like the Forever Men or just by different sort of private interest groups, did get put into effect. Mm-hmm. And that that is all of the, whether QAnon and all of the other strange things, the think tanks, all of the sort of money that was spent campaigning and promoting and selling certain ideas combined with, in all seriousness, and there's a guy in the book, Metzger, who talks about it, the algorithms, Mm. the way now your computer and your information sources deliver you materials based on what they know about you. So the slicing of that gets thinner and thinner and thinner until you're only ever going to see things that you already agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that almost anticipate in the way that this novel perhaps anticipates where we are now, that anticipates where we're going to, you know, be in a minute. Um, I find that all on again, it's, it's what I say. My, my book is actually frightening to me um, mm-hmm. in the sense that that is what happened and that is what is continuing to happen. And it is absolutely without um, acknowledgement or tracing to where it comes from. So we can't know where information stops and starts. We can't hold anyone accountable for lying, basically, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it has become somehow, on the on the highest levels of politics and government, a thousand percent okay to lie and even to acknowledge it may or may not be true, uh, but we're just gonna put it out there. I mean, that is truly terrifying because it doesn't give us anything to hold on to. It doesn't give us any scaffolding of what's real and what, what we can rely upon. So we're, we're heading into a super scary moment. And I think, I think people now sort of know that, but there's a lot of other people go like, I don't care. All bets are off. And I think, you know, I hear other people talking about that we will be end up in a civil war. And I think, well, that's going to be weird because the Republicans have all the guns. Democrats mm-hmm. don't buy guns. So what exactly <laughs> is the civil war going to look like? And I don't want to be here for it because I'm scared. I, I, I live in a world where I make stuff up. I catastrophize in my head. And I secretly hope I'm not right. And I mm-hmm. keep, unfortunately, being quite right, which is its own problem. Um, yeah. yeah. I read, I think it was only this morning or yesterday, that some some poll said that something like, Two in five Americans uh, said that a civil war in the next decade was quite likely. And like a part of me, I I have two different responses to that, I guess. One is that sort of um, that this sort of that 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 they they could be right. And that is absolutely terrifying. And the other one is a sort of I suppose is the one trying to reassure myself is it's kind of it's it's unlikely to happen. But it's kind of mad that people think that nonetheless in fact like people have gone so long so far down certain rabbit holes that they can almost quite sort of relaxedly talk about <laughs> I, that's exactly uh, that's exactly war. how i feel and until recently i i have not spoken you're the first person i've even said those words <laughs> to because i feel exactly like that on the one hand i feel like that can't happen <laughs> that can't happen here mm. um there's no way that would happen uh it seems so unlikely because that doesn't happen in civilized worlds whatever that might mean um, and then increasingly, I would say there are other people who believe that we're already in a version of it, that mm-hmm. in all of this sort of, um, noise, there is the beginnings of that. And I do have mm-hmm. a fear. Um, and I think like, were I to continue to write this story further out that some small thing could happen somewhere and the mm-hmm. way in which information, ideas, images are disseminated that could trip it off. So some mm-hmm. incident would be the inciting incident that would not be a, a major event otherwise. Um, and all of a sudden we could be in a civil war in the same way that people take to the streets, you know, when things happen, mm-hmm. that taking to the streets could become more inflamed than it already is. And, and uh-huh. in some ways it's terrifying to say there are moments that already, that could have happened, that could have flipped. I mean, even when Trump mm-hmm. walked into Lafayette Square with the Bible mm-hmm. and, and had helicopters the military getting rid of black lives matter protesters pushing them away and tear gassing them it's amazing that that didn't get weirder right because Mm -hmm. that's exactly the kind of thing that could go really weird yeah 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 and it's that kind of there's historical precedent for it of course like i think of the 
Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Like, we're not going to believe that the whole of Europe went to war because some minor Archduke was assassinated, but everything was in place that that could then act as the kind of the trip switch that uh, that ultimately set things off. Yeah. So, and it's funny, I don't even want to be talking about it. I'm like, Adam, we can't talk about this. It's too scary. Um, but Notice you know, my I nervous think, laughter. <laughs> I'm totally, I know. But I think the fact that like even, you know, every day I always say to myself, what can topple Donald Trump? Hmm. Okay, the man is under investigation everywhere. He does, I mean, a million things that are illegal, a million and a half more that are immoral. Hmm. And yet still people are turning out to support him. They believe he is more real than than, you know, 200 and whatever years of, of American democracy as we know it. And I find all of that really, really scary. I find the idea mm-hmm. that nothing can take him down short of him choking on a hamburger. You know, the man seems invincible. Um, it's scary. And I always say to people mm-hmm. like, well, how does Donald Trump deal with his stress? And they all say to me, he has no stress because he's not, <laughs> he doesn't think about things like that. He doesn't worry that he's mm-hmm. not going to be okay. Um, which I'm not sure I believe that either, but I think I don't understand how the man is still alive. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> the the unhealthiest man on the planet. You know, he should totally. I get a letter. Sort of... Yeah, I get a letter saying you have to turn up for jury duty, and if I don't respond immediately, I, I'm I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> you know, um, a parking ticket. I'm like I'm frantic. I'm like yeah. I have to deal with this immediately. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that is fascinating, and what. Mm-hmm. What is that kind of person? And I would say as much as I wrote this book to sort of understand parts of it, Donald Trump to me remains completely mm-hmm. enigmatic because I think there is no human, and that might be the word. He mm-hmm. may not be human in, in the sense of having humanity or any of the qualities yeah. we ascribe to a human. Uh, how is he functioning? Mm-hmm. How does Mitch McConnell function? You know? It's um, I suppose in a way it's a, it's a sort of a, it's a symptom of this sort of um, sort of division, this sort of uh, division that has been at least perpetuated by um, by the Internet over the last sort of 10, 15 years. That sort of that it's so difficult to even, you know, with someone like, you know, Trump maybe is a sort of particular case because he does you know, without wanting to sort of diagnose, he does seem like to be a sort of narcissistic psychopath in some, in some sense. But oh, like goody. there are other, right, exactly. like, but there are other, you know, maybe in a sense, like we have been in some way stripped of our um, capacity for empathizing and understanding and sort of capturing why, okay, not agreeing with Mitch McConnell, but understanding why he does what he does. And yet we seem, and I think this is one of the important things that the unfolding does, is sort of, it, in a sense, tries to take us back to the the terrain of empathy in a way. Absolutely. And it's so interesting that you said that because I think the self-protective or tribal mechanism of not understanding the other, not even being interested in the other or wanting to understand the other is part of where we are right now and also an enormous piece of the difficulty because mm-hmm. were we to be curious about how others see things, even if we disagree, that opens an enormous door towards uh, hope and problem solving mm-hmm. and all of those things. But part of the idea of creating profound dissent is also that by disrupting and spinning people into these tribes and creating a a sense of true discomfort, even in like the small everyday life things, that's part of what you're supposed to do when you want to fracture a society is make Mm. it uncomfortable for people. And then they Mm. pull back and become protective of their thing. And that's kind of where we are now. And as people only want to look at themselves, only want to see their own reflection, not see beyond that, then it becomes much more problematic to knit together Mm. a compassionate society that can tolerate disagreement and can tolerate dissent. And right now Mm -hmm. we don't have a good tolerance for that because everybody's busy, like going, do I have enough cans in case of the next pandemic? And in case, (laughs) you know, there's a, whatever, a bad thing happening. I want to be sure I have, you know, my generator and all of these like survival things. Yeah. 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 But if, I mean, 
if it is possible to to be to be optimistic, I think that's where we find the optimism is that I've been I've been thinking a lot recently about political literature and the sort of I guess the the capacity for a book, whether it be a sort of a uh, sort of a, a piece, a work of nonfiction about I don't know climate change or politics, or whether it be fiction like satire or or, or just political fiction, the the sort of the the what power it has to enact change. And I was thinking, you know, in a lot of ways, like I spoke uh, last year to the the satirist uh, Armando Iannucci, who was sort of saying, you know, he did The Thick of It and Veep and like, Avenue 5. And he has struggled with the sort of, with satirizing people like Trump and people like Boris Johnson, because the sort of, they're, they're almost unsatirizable. Um, but I think what you do in with the, the unfolding, it's kind of almost sort of, show a way forward which is sort of like it could be it, it's not in sort of necessarily highlighting the extremes but in highlighting the kind of the common humanity that that political fiction or political writing can can still have an impact and can still have an effect yeah and i think that's so sort of accurate in the sense also that people keep saying to me well why would you tell it from about these people why would you talk about rich republicans who wants to read that and i thought you need to read that like we need right. to understand that um we can't just look at ourselves and expect that our own reflection will help us find a way forward so in that mm -hmm. sense i think it is a very inside out call to conversation mm -hmm. um but that said i'm also terrified you know a lot of people say to me men don't read fiction written by women i'm like okay that's that's a thing and that is a real mm -hmm. thing um and a lot of other people said to me who is this book for? And I thought it's as mm. though it's supposed to be, I wasn't sure if the question was, who am I advocating for or who am I expecting mm. will read it? Like the, the woman asked it as though she thought like, what Democrat would want to read about rich Republicans? And I thought you need to, we all need to, uh -huh. we all need to know who we are, the world we live in and who else is here. Literally, we need to see each other. Um, mm -hmm. So as, as much as I think, you know, satire and humor and kind of uh, turning things upside down is important. I absolutely think just looking at the people around us, looking at the people that we would say, I don't understand how they see it that way. I don't understand what that means to them. We need to understand what it means to them. We don't have to agree, but we have to try to sort of forge some way of talking about things and even agreeing to disagree nonviolently. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so disagree agreeably. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, that feels like the the perfect place <laughs> on which to to leave it. Um, the unfolding really is an extraordinary novel. It's available, of course, from Shakespeare and Company uh, or your local independent bookstore, wherever wherever that may be. It's available from our website, um, naturally, uh, and we do ship all over the world. Um, all that remains for me to say is, A.M. Holmes, thank you so much for joining us today. Adam, thank you so much for having me. It's such a treat to see you and talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>